to Composing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Welcome to Composing Myself. This week, Dave and I have the privilege of being joined by songwriter, masterful sitarist and film composer Anushka Shankar. Welcome, Anushka. Where are you this morning? Thank you. I'm in my elder kids' room at my home in London. Fantastic. Presumably the elder kids at school. Yeah. yeah. And um, I have a, I was was just saying earlier, I have a, a house guest, so my living room desk is not mine right now so I'm I'm in his room fair enough yeah great well it's great to have you with us absolutely yeah and we and we typically start these these conversations by asking uh, this question which is do you remember do you have a, a, a powerful memory of the first time you heard a piece of music that made you go wow what is that I need more of that um I don't know if it was quite what is that I need more of that but I do remember just being surrounded by music from from early on and and as you asked the question the thing that I remembered the most surprisingly to me was Peter and the Wolf um because my mum had uh some kind of a book that went with the cassette tape or the or the LP I'm not sure which it was of the soundtrack to Peter and the Wolf and so it was really nicely done where it would sort of stop in every section of music and give you time to read the next bit of the story and then the music. So it was this really immersive experience of hearing the story told to me where suddenly the wolf would come out and then the wolf theme would play. And it was just so magical. Like, I think that was my moment of realizing the sort of imagery and power and emotion that could, that could come with music. And uh, yeah, it blew me away. I, I think I had the same thing, but I had it as a, it's like an LP vinyl that had pages of a book. So you put the record on and, and then it made a little tinkling noise to allow you to catch it with the reading. That and must then be it gave what it was. That must be what it yeah. was. Yeah, I don't it remember how it looked fabulous. as much as how it sounded because my mum was the one holding it. But um, yeah. Yeah, it was really, really special. Yeah, oh, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, I guess you had music all the time around you, did you? Were you always, were you drawn quickly into playing music yourself? Um, not, not, I mean, define early. I, um, I used to love dancing around to music and I, I loved going to, uh, a lot of music and dance performances with my mum from, from my earliest memories. And it was just so much a part of our, our culture and our community, I suppose, that kids were brought along to things. So I wasn't alone in that, but I remember being, you know, two, three, four, five, and, uh, we might be somewhere like the Bharata Vidya Bhavan, which is an Indian cultural and art center in, in West London. And my mom and, you know, friends would be sitting in the show and the kids would sit as long as we were able. And then they'd let us run round to the hallway <laughs> and, and come back. And and so we were just there around around music and arts in, in a way that was probably really formative because I was just exposed to so many different instruments and dance styles and, and so mainly within the Indian um, framework, but but others as well. And um, when did you sort of start playing Anushka? Um, was Sitar your first 
instrument? It was. I picked up a sitar first when I was about seven, maybe just touching eight. Uh, So it was a few years after I was already, you know, loving hearing music, but I hadn't had any desire to play earlier Mm. than that. And I think the initial um, prompt to play was more external than from me. Like there was definitely a an encouragement from my parents to to give it a try. And they were as clear as they could be that they were just wanting me to try it and see if I liked it. And, um, and that enabled me to sort of just uh, give it a go. And, um, and that's when I started. Can I ask a stupid question or potentially stupid question is (laughs) they look, I I picked up a sitar once and it's quite big. When you're seven or eight, do you get kind of a cut down version? Yeah. Um, People do both. I, I remember one of my wow. students had actually started playing with a full-size sitar that he just held on the floor and got his arm around it until he was big enough to pick it up. And that, I mean, to me, that seems crazy because it's learning two different techniques. Yeah. But uh, but uh, for me, they had, they had a smaller sitar made that was about half the size of a normal sitar. And then when I was nine or 10, I had a kind of mid-size, slightly simplified one. And then by the time I was 12, I had a full-size sitar. So I went through three different sizes which is yeah. great they're not as um common as small violins and stuff though you don't just see them in the shops next to the full-size ones so, just, so you sort of have to order one or yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Do, do your children play sitar no oh. no <laughs> <laughs> i think my my elder kid very much um senses the potential pressures around playing music he's very musical uh, but he's more interested in art and painting and writing and I think they feel like his own thing a bit more uh my younger one is playing music he's playing piano and seems to be loving that um and I perhaps selfishly and maybe I'll come to regret it I'm enjoying not trying to combine those aspects of relationship in in also trying to teach them the way my father did I mean my father did a great job of that and we were able to have those dual relationships but um Maybe as a mom or maybe just as me, I, that feels difficult to, to somehow instill that same relationship, the seriousness of that guru-student relationship, learning by ear, by osmosis. It's not the same as just showing someone something in a casual way. So it's it's hard to think of how to do that with a, just being cuddly mom as well, you know? Terribly difficult. I mean, I taught children to drive. I mean, Oof, most, yeah. <laughs> I can honestly say the most stressful yeah, helping with homework is really difficult. Like and there's, homework. there's yeah. a sort of mixed, it, there's this mixed scenario on, on both sides where it's sort of like, I think I need the help and I need to ask her, but I don't really want to. And I'm like, oh God. And it's always just a bit like, are we going to get through this without it being awkward? You know? Maths homework particularly. <laughs> have you noticed they divide differently now than they used to? I don't know, yeah. like when you did this, they've completely changed the way you draw, the way you do dividing. Like I grew up with... Um, Oh. You know, you write the number oh. that you're dividing and you have that kind of funny box yeah, around then, it. And then you do... Now they do bubbles. They have like yeah. a number here and it points to two arrows, to two no. other numbers. Yeah, and they take something from there and move it. And I literally, it's like a simple division that I know in my head, but I actually don't understand the paper yeah. method. <laughs> it, it is. I know exactly what you do. Because I, I, I even got A-level math, so I thought I was quite good at it. And the, I was teaching 11-year-olds division or 8-year-olds division and could not figure out how they were doing it these days. Crazy. <laughs> Anyway, well, music and math, you know. Yeah. Exactly. It, so, Anushka, studying with your dad, so, I mean, what's it like? What was that like? Do, do you have particular times of day you studied with him? Was it easy to jump between 
guru and father? You know, how did that all jive for you? Yeah, I mean, of course, there was an, an arc from where it started to where it went. Um, we Where yeah. me at seven was different to me at 17. But but the general shape was that we would practice together most evenings after mm. after school in a bit of a break uh, before dinner. And um, at its lightest when I was younger, that may have been 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then by the end, it may have been two hours. Um, yeah. But uh, but that was most weeknights. And then weekends would be a little bit more immersive. We might do a morning and an evening session unless there was a plan of some kind that changed that. So that was the sort of shape of, of of a day. And and within the dynamic, I think we found our way to, obviously they bled into each other a little bit, but but on the whole, there was a slight attitude shift on both our parts, like walking into the music room. My role was that of a student a little bit more. So um, I was there to receive, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily be argumentative or challenging in the same way of an idea he showed me in that room as if we were having a discussion about something in the living room so it was just a a little Mm. mindset shift that we would both have that would that would um, slip us into guru and student compared to father and daughter does that because I know I was you know, as you would probably hope and expect we do a little bit of research I've been reading around you you've got so many areas that you are active in as well as you know being a mum but all the way through to writing you've done some acting rating music incredibly glamorous parts of your life do, do you still have that concept of the music room to go into when you're making music and you you That's have a good to question um yes and no I for me uh the the form of music that I learned and the way I learned it is 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 hugely central to who I am and to to me as a musician but uh, but one challenging aspect of it was that I found it very intimidating and rather frightening you know because I learned from from my father at his level but also because it comes with so much um, symbolism and representation of a culture and history and and so it was one thing to play my father's compositions uh, as I did in my early days performing and my first couple of albums. But as we felt that shift into me needing to become more of an improviser, which is a key part of our music or be a composer, which I wanted to do, I suddenly was very, very inhibited. Those were the areas where I would really freeze up and feel very challenged because I had such a perfectionist aspect to my personality, which didn't go well with or the weight of the music, you know, so I just, I really struggled with that. And so one of the things that I did over time from my twenties and onwards was try and make my relationship with the music and with my instrument more and more casual and just sort of test the boundaries of what that meant. So for example, I always grew up with us having a music room and for my parents, the music room also often combined with their puja room, their prayer room. It was the same room. So that message is very loud and clear, you know, it's the, it's got a sanctity to it. And my godmother once was like, well, what would happen if you left it in your bedroom instead? And I was like, in my bedroom? You know, that seems really weird, you know, to have. But I was like, well, okay, what would that feel like if it was in my bedroom or in the living room? And just just trying to find these ways to just make it more of a friendly, casual relationship than one where I felt like I had to bow down to my instrument, even though that's an aspect of, of mm. what it comes from. And for me, that really helped. So it doesn't mean that I have less respect for it, but I had to find a way to see my instrument more as a friend than something yeah. scary. <laughs> did, did, did you ever sort of 
rebel against the the the, the education part of it? I um I had I was I had split personality in that I, I very much rebelled as much as I could in secret, but I wasn't sort of bold enough to rebel very overtly. So I never um I never rebelled around the music, you know, and um and and that was something that I loved. And so in a way I think what my parents did was they they sort of compartmentalized and he was a bit more of uh dad slash guru and my mum was more mum slash disciplinary and life admin everything else so a lot of my rebelling arguing stuff happened with my mum um and not with my dad and and I think that was uh I think I knew by then that I loved the music you know so even though there was some weight and some intimidation I did I did still want it um random question when you were studying did you take notes of lessons you know that would help you uh either pass things on or in future, you know, did you do yeah, that? I did, I did two things. I did years of recording on cassette tapes. Wow. I don't have them, but my mom has them. We have mm-hmm. hundreds, if not thousands of cassette tapes from over the years of, of me recording our lessons. And I have books of, of all the things he wrote me and taught me that I, that I wrote down and noted down and, and and we we extended past what's normal to an extent because he loved composing so much. So yeah, yeah. usually in Indian classical music, compositions are a big part of it, but they're always a kind of framework from which to improvise. Whereas he went yeah. beyond that and would compose pieces that sounded like they had the same format of moving away into improvisations, but they were they were whole compositions. So I have I have books of these things across various ragas. I mean, it's quite, it's quite incredible, really. You should do something with those. That's, no, that's I was trying to think of the right way to use them. And, and as uh, as you know, I mean, we've recently had this new agreement with Wise Music where they're helping, you know, us take care of all of those archives. And so that's actually one of the key things I was saying to them, like, let's mm-hmm. let's see what we can do. And I think before someone like them stepping in, it felt like a, an overwhelming task. But if, yeah, if, sure. if they're able to be a bit more helpful on that, that would be that would be great. Big <laughs> note, Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder if they've got a cassette record player. Oh my god. You know what? They're coming back in fashion now. My kid wants a little uh, a little Walkman or something. Oh wow. I just was kicking myself thinking of all the cassette tapes because the 90s are back in fashion now too. Mm. It's like I had walls of these wall-mounted cassette tape holders that of course I instantly chucked as soon as we moved to CDs, which I also then chucked. Um and now he's like, why did you chuck that? It's so funny. But yeah, there are cassette tapes again. <laughs> it was quite a sort of romantic thing to make a tape for somebody. Yes. To, you know what, some like receiving a mixtape from a boyfriend or from yeah. a friend and just the thought. But also I think any this is more energetic than literal, but like anything tactile, I think there's just a subliminal or energetic feeling that like you're holding the same thing someone else has touched. So like... I know, you know, as a teenager, I had a long distance boyfriend in India and like it would take two to three weeks to get one piece of communication from me to him and him back to me. So it was was appalling for actual communication, but but to the magic of receiving the letter, you know, and picking up the paper and seeing the pen and and knowing you were holding the same thing that someone across the world had held. And I think the same with cassette, someone's held it, touch play, touch pause, you know, around the tape. And there's just something about that. But like a, a Spotify playlist just doesn't. <laughs> well, they, 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 I've I've still got all the letters to my teenager and college girlfriends, and yeah. I have to say, you know, 
and their little drawings on them and things. And you, you oh. pick them up. I mean, don't tell my wife, but, you know, you pick them up. And, late, love. And, and, and lie you, with them. Yeah, you're, <laughs> she might listen to this, but you're transported back in time by them, by the artefact. Yeah. I'm a bit nostalgic about that stuff. Like I save all my concert tickets and things. So I have shoe yeah. that I keep in a cupboard and I just, I just want to grow old and still have all those tickets and pick one up. And you know, and now it's like, everything's on a barcode or whatever. And it's like, I'm like what am I going to save the screenshots of, of that barcode when I went to a show? I, I, <laughs> it, I, think, I think that the ticket thing is a terrible, terrible loss. It's like, it's like record sleeves. They used to be, so fascinating to have and hold and look and study and read the words on the back. And now I can't see any of the words. My eyes are too bad on the little things. Yeah. You know. Well, I guess that's why so, so many people have come back to that, you know, and they really yeah. love, you know, buying, buying into the journey. Like what was the artist's journey? What's the story they're trying to tell? How does the artwork complement that? What do the words say? Mm. There is something about that. So was there a pivotal moment when you decided to pursue a career as a musician? Uh, yeah, there was. Um, it would have been when I was 18, needing to move from um, high school to either university or tour. <laughs> yeah. And so that was uh, that was the point. Um, wow. Where I thought, well, I'm already on tour part time because um, I was leaving school a lot or touring in the summers and on holidays. And um, and and. I wouldn't, I, that's one of the things I still look back and go, Oof, would, it, would it have been nice to spend four years in university? Because I would have come to this anyway. But at the time, I didn't know that I would have come to this anyway. It felt like there was a moment, there was interest, I was being booked. Angel Records had just asked to sign me. I released my first record in my last year of high school. You know, a manager had just approached me and it was like, I couldn't guarantee that four years from then, the same things would happen. And I knew I loved it. So so I made the decision not to go to university and, and get on the road full time. But what were you touring at that time? Classic, purely Indian classical music. So I was yeah. touring with tabla and sitar and I would tour and play ragas, my father's compositions. And then, as I say, slowly and slowly more of my own improvisations kind of building into his compositions. And then uh, that continued on for a few years. And I think I was probably 23-ish where mm. I felt a bit stuck. Um right. And I think what was happening for me was that as much as I, as I say, and I keep saying I loved the music and it was a part of who I am, it didn't feel like all of who I was. And so once I'd done it for a few years and I'd gone around the world a few times, so I'd kind of done that circuit and it felt the same because I suppose my playing wasn't growing because my creative aspect wasn't in there. And I just felt really stuck. And um, and I spoke to my parents and I spoke to my manager and I took a, a sabbatical, which is such a glorious word um, that musicians use, you know, and maybe some other fields, but like, I'm going to take a sabbatical. Yeah, yeah. And so I took a one year sabbatical with this, with this idea that I was just going to stop and be young, like my other friends had been and just party and travel and maybe go backpacking and and there was in the back of my mind, I also thought, and maybe there's space for something else to happen, you know, and I think that was a secret hope. And that is what happened, because that was the year that I made my album Rise, which yeah. is my fourth album. But in a lot of ways, I think of it as my first baby, because that mm. was the first one that I composed and I produced and I spent that kind of immersion in. And um, and and that was the one where I sort of, you know, quote unquote, found myself, you know. Yeah, because I think with Rise, I mean, that was what, two thousand. Yeah, it came out in 2005. Yeah, yeah no. and a real conscious change of genre because the previous albums had been classical music, hadn't they, mm-hmm. really? And then this sort of meditative, minimalist, beautiful 
So as you, you know, great word, immersive material and a real conscious change. I want to say genre, but, you know, it's not genre defined because it's still sitar and you, but was there other music that influenced you, you know, being yeah, growing up I mean, in a home yeah. full of classical music, you know? Yeah. Was there, did you love the Pet Shop Boys as well? You yeah. know? So in high school, in high school, for example, what the, the sort of classic pattern was that I'd be on tour with my dad, I'd go play Carnegie Hall or Corner Hall in Toronto or some iconic venue. But then I'd come back and I'd be at like TLC shows with my friends or listening to Massive Attack or the yeah. Beastie Boys, you know, and um um and so, you know, California 90s R&B and hip hop was definitely present, but slowly I found electronica more and more in different in, in different forms of electronic music and uh, and particularly that kind of Goa trance strand because we were yeah. going to India every year. So that that and all my friends in India were very much listening to to trance and and house, but mainly trance. And so, um, so those were my great loves musically. And so by the time I was 18, 19, I'd be going to Goa, I'd be carving out time in my, in my tour diary to go to Goa for three, four weeks if I could and be at all the trance parties across New Year's and be with all my friends there. So, so that love of electronic music, but, but the sort of weirdly hypnotic spiritual depth within some forms of electronic music that I recognized from my classical music that always really intrigued me. It was like, they're, they're still all about me connecting to myself and to something else, you know, just in really dramatically different forms, like stomping on a dance floor or, yeah. or meditating with an instrument. You know? <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, so, so, you know, that, that sabbatical year, I actually spent two, three months in Goa. So it was really influential on the sound of the music, the kind of subtle electronic elements um, that kind of real hypnotic way of slowly unfolding an idea uh, that that had those sound worlds and you know sometimes even foregoing sitar on a couple of tracks I think um, but also other things I'd loved and been fascinated by Spain and flamenco at that point for many years and so um, one of the collaborators on Rise is a flamenco pianist who I, I played with again when I did Traveler my flamenco Indian music album mm. uh, but it started on Rise where it was like this this kind of mix of various things that I loved and just starting to feel how fun that was to to be making music that also felt like me and all aspects of me in the same way that my life did like bringing them together rather than having them split and compartmentalized that way I guess the 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 Spanish had a similar sort of trance genre of um, kind of beaches and bringing in bits of flamenco and all of that yeah well, I mean, there was a huge community, you know, I mean, there was there was a huge community from Israel, for example, where we'd be in Goa and everyone would come after their two years in the army. And so there was a huge faction of Israeli young wow. people were there. There were, um, yeah, Spain and Ibiza was like such a spinoff from Goa and there was such a connection. So so all of that was there as well. But outside of that, I was, I think, recognizing some spirit connect across these genres of music that I listened to and and I basically saw a common thread between them you know and and just wanted to explore having them be be together more overtly in that way
your music comes from? God? The <laughs> um, uh, I, I feel like I see us as um, like phone chargers, like you plug into something and then you channel something that moves through you and it comes out of you uh, in some form. And, and I think that's across whatever we do, whether it's like love being creative and how you make up a story for a kid when they're not feeling happy versus um, how you spontaneously dance and find your own movements and shapes when you're moving and, and or how a melody forms or yeah, I just think that we are very inherently creative and that that source is kind of constantly and infinitely available. So my experience of it is that as I don't mean the second, like the very second I tap into it, I write a piece of music, but, but my experience is that as soon as I turn to it, it's there for me. Like, it's not like the creative idea is somehow elusive. Um, it's that I need to be open to it. And as soon as I am, it provides itself, if that makes sense. Tuning in. Tuning in, tuning yeah. in. That's very much it. Yeah. Yeah. And that can be a challenge. So the, the creative block or the difficulty can definitely exist for me in huge ways. But I, my experience of it is that it's about me not finding my way to it, not it not finding its way to me. It's out there. It's, it's out there. there. You've yeah. got to just find your way. I, I like what you were saying about, um, you know, writing material without sitar, because we've talked about that a bit, haven't we? Yeah. You know, whereby yeah. actually your creative spirit is not just solely directed there. And, you know, and I think it's something you'd like to pursue in terms of film music, etc. You know, tell us a bit about that. How do you, how, how can you feel yourself separating, if you like? Yeah, the performer to the composer for other people. Well, people found that very curious when, you know, when they would interview me for Rise, for example, which, you know, was way back in 25, uh, 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 when I was 25, 2005. And yeah. it felt strange to people for a sitar player to write an album that then had no sitar on a couple. Exactly, of them. yeah. And I think for me, that felt weirdly natural because I was composing them. So they were still mine. And mm. so I think there's been a part of me that's always felt like a composer, um, as part of and separate from being a sitar player. And of mm. course, I think the way I see it as sitar is my first language because that's the thing I was given from childhood. So I speak it the best, you know, and mm. I speak very naturally through it. Um, but it's also a language that I speak. Like I, I just, I, I I like creating, I like sound. And I, mm. I don't think that everything in the world can be said by the sound of the sitar. So when I'm writing, there are, there are things that are not for me to speak through a sitar, you know, and I want to, <laughs> I want a clarinet or I want a, a violin or a cello and, and I want it to say that thing. Yeah, I mean, so I think I would like to do more of that uh, because I think mm. for me that's that's a growth and I'm interested in growing, you know. So so to do more and more of composing in other ways is exciting. And I think that the small experiences I've had of writing for for film or writing with dancers, um, it's been it's been really exciting, and I and I and I recognize that same creative fulfillment and charge mm. as, as when I do the other things. So of course I would like to do more. I guess it's more collaborative, is it? Writing for film and writing for dance. I mean, I, I work with collaborators a lot in my music, so so I find all of it collaborative. Um, yeah. But um, but collaborating in different ways is exciting, very much so. And I think there's something really inspiring about recognizing that common thread across across mediums, you know. And, and uh, yeah, I love it. Do, how how do you choose 
people to collaborate with? I I was trying to explain this the other day, and it, it sounds um, it sounds a bit odd, but it's just it's just as simple as like being attracted to someone artistically so the way you might be attracted to a person romantically and then want to pursue something there's like a there's like a pulse of some kind that you feel and and it's very much the same creatively if I hear someone or see someone um and I'm drawn to it there's like a hunger towards it you know um I I then want that I want (laughs) and I and and I just over the years I just trust that instinct now completely because it's led me in so many positive directions that I don't, I don't really stop and think about the why I'll figure out the how later, but I just know I feel that draw towards someone and I, and I then try and see if I can, I can find a way to them and, and see if, if, if that works. And, and so far a hundred percent of the time it has. I want to know about between us and how that came about because you're just back. Uh, you just performed at Kennedy center, I think right. in Washington yeah. with the orchestra you know, working with orchestra as opposed to, say, your quintet or whatever. You know, why between us? Why did you create that? Well, one one strand of my classical life was that I have been a soloist with orchestra since I was about 15. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've been playing my father's orchestral repertoire since then. He has, and then he wrote more for me. So at the beginning, he had his own two concerto that he'd written for himself that I took over playing. Then he wrote his third concerto and his symphony for me. So I've had you know, a lot of positive experience working with orchestra and feeling that power of being on stage. But Mm. again, like I was saying about composing, I hadn't felt what it felt like to feel that in my own creativity, you know? And so, so I think for a long time, I've wanted to experience that. And, and, you know, just to put it out there, I'd also very much like to experience that more, you know, between us is arrangements of my previous existing music. I would love to write a concerto or something myself as well, specifically for orchestra, um, but between us itself came about from from meeting Jules Buckley, you know, the incredible mm. conductor arranger, and um, and talking about you know extending the, the the life and the versions of my music to an orchestral space. And I saw his diversity of the kind of music and and musicians he had worked with in the past, and he felt like a great fit. So we worked together on on these really new, exciting, beautiful arrangements of a lot of my music, and and turned that into a live performance that um, we did several times together in 2018 and a bit before mm. that. And um, and we'd made some recordings and kind of talked about it and then forgot about it. I had a lot going on at that time. A lot of things I was putting out, I didn't really think that made a lot of sense, uh, mm. but it was just lovely to have done the shows and I forgot about it. Then came the pandemic, right? And there's like all this time and there's this lack of shows. And, um, and alongside many other things, one of the things I did was find that Dropbox folder of between us recordings and um and in that space of isolation like to hear myself on stage with that many other instruments and humans like that feeling of connection and music it just really struck me again you know how how beautiful and powerful that was and actually that they were really good recordings and great music so um so we made a decision at that point to to release it (laughs) i'm really pleased you did because it's beautiful and i'd love to see it live I hadn't, I hadn't made a live record since I was, you know, since 20 years before. So it was it was also nice to do that because I think there's a part of my my playing and my skill set that I think only really comes out on stage that's just different from composing. I'm a bit more serene and uh, atmospheric, I think, when I play in studio. 
Yeah. Whereas live, I get really fiery and I get really dynamic. And I I, I sometimes struggle to marry that because in the studio, it can feel too busy or like too much. Mm. So to just capture it live when it's actually happening and then put it out. Um, yeah, it feels really fulfilling too. Yeah. Programmers take notes. She wants to write for orchestra <laughs> and between us should be programmed much more to make up for the pandemic. There we go. That's my <laughs> plug of the morning. All inquiries to Jill Graham at White yeah, Group. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put some adverts in this. Too much talking, more adverts. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you Today, we're, we're speaking on the 30th of June and um, a new piece of music has just been released. I listened to it this okay. morning, very much enjoyed yeah. it. And it's, it's the, it's the it's, would you call it a single? It's the first track of, mm-hmm. of a, an album or a, I think you sometimes call them chapters in your mm-hmm. life albums. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, what's behind oh. this chapter? Yeah, so, um, so the song that's come out today, the 30th of June, is, is called Stolen Moments and it is the first song of a, a mini album that will be coming out in October called chapter one forever for now and um i made the decision to call it chapter one blah 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 because i i realized last year that um i just wanted to experience making albums in the same sort of impulsive and immediate way that 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 i do a live show you know not that it's the same as doing a live show but i i wanted to capture moments and not get too bogged down by by the mental thing that happens when I'm when I'm making an album, you know, and and so in my head I reframed it into like, okay, I'm not going to do one big album next. I'll do chapters, and they're going to connect, and they're going to have some kind of theme that runs through them that I don't even know what it is yet. But I'm going to evolve on this journey and just do chapter one for now. <laughs> so I called it forever for now because um, it still is a picture forever. Um, and, and then do chapter two from there and chapter three. So so um, so it's it's the first of a trilogy at least. And um, and I'm really excited about it. I've I've worked with uh, as my producer Aruj Aftab, who's the incredible Pakistani uh, singer and composer, who um, became the first Pakistani to win a Grammy last year. And she's a dear friend of mine. We worked on one song together last year, which was also nominated for a Grammy, which was great. Um, but we did that one song together, and then obviously we're interacting a lot. So it felt that, that I felt that same, you know, that same feeling. And I was like, hey, do you want to? produce my record and um and so she did and also um this is she sing on it as well on some of it actually doesn't we made a conscious choice that she was just going to be my producer and sit solely in that role and um she has um I don't want to toot my own horn in that way but 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 you know part of our relationship is that we met from when I was already touring and she was a musical student so she's been listening to me for a long time and and it was really interesting to have a friend who had also listened to me really closely for that long because she could really pinpoint what she heard in me and what she'd like to hear more of that she hadn't heard so it was it was actually a really beautiful producer relationship and and then if that wasn't enough, we were also recording at um, at the incredible Funk House Studio in Berlin, which oh, wow. uh, yeah. my label Lighter, you know, uh, sits within. And um, and so Niels Fram, who co-runs my label with his partner Felix Grimm, he also was there, and it kind of impulsively and willingly and amazingly, you know, stepped in musically as well. So so he features more overtly on piano on one of the other tracks that will come out in the future, but he's playing across three of the four songs on on various instruments in the way that he does so he's playing I think glass harmonica and harmonium on stolen moments and 
he yeah, that's yeah. what it is yeah, yeah. it's really right. all the sounds it's like what is this you yeah. know it's so often what happens with him and he's been hugely influential on me as well in the last few years he and Arud really struck me because there's a you know minimalism is a very overused word but there is a space to both of their music that allows you as a listener to just dip in and 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 just breathe into that space with them and um and that's something that I continually struggle to do. I'm even as a, you know, I'm a fast talker and I say a lot and I fill in spaces. So that's the same as an artist. And so that thing that I was attracted to in them, I was really trying to tap into on, on this chapter. And, and that was really lovely getting to, to have them there to do that with, because I do feel like the songs are a little bit more expansive in that way than, than a lot of what I do. So yeah, I'm thrilled. A great uh, studio as well, I think. Incredible studio. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And, and, you know, it's a treat nowadays to get to walk into a huge old school recording space mm. like that. It doesn't happen very often anymore. Yeah. Mm. Chapter one, you'll be touring, I guess, in the fall? Yeah, I'm touring. I'll be touring in the fall. We're going to uh, the USA and Canada in the fall. Uh, and I'm taking my my new quintet, which I formed last winter for the India tour. And they're wonderful. And, you know, we are already playing a, a bunch of music that feels really exciting to play with them. But as the chapters continue to release, we'll, we'll include more and more of the new music. So it's almost like, you know, there's more sliding in as each tour progresses. Oh, so, brilliant. yeah, so we'll be playing a bit of chapter one. And by the time we tour Europe in the spring, we'll be playing a bit of chapter two as well. And by India in the winter, we'll play chapter three, you know, so it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a weirdly natural, but also novel way to do it. Yeah. So it, feels, it feels fun. And I know for a fact, and I don't think it's a secret, uh, that chapter two sort of suddenly came to you, didn't it? When you were in LA, tell mm. us about that, you know, it's. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so I haven't talked about that anywhere yet because chapter two is very, very fresh, you know, it's in mm. that kind of writing stage, but, but again, I think, um, you know, I walked around the last two years feeling like I was in a creative block. And I remember one person saying to me, maybe it's not a block, maybe it's just a gestation period, yeah. you know? And I, and I think that's a really beautiful way to reframe that because this year I would make it almost sound like I don't work hard because it feels like it's flowing so easily. I just, I just go in and it happens and that's, that feels amazing, but that's not coming from nowhere. It's coming from all the period before where I was thinking and dreaming and hoping and trying to figure it out and feeling stuck and not, and then, you know, <laughs> then suddenly go in and it happens yeah <laughs> so beautiful I want to ask you about in her name because I know you are also described as a passionate activist and obviously there is a connection between in her name and that can you tell us about that this is a collaboration with a dancer and a poet and it's very powerful how did it come about yeah, so it's hard to talk about In Her Name without talking about its predecessor. Uh, Ten years before now, I released a song called In Jyoti's Name, which was written in honor of Jyoti Singh Pandey, who was the the, the poor woman who um, was was raped and eventually murdered um, as a result of her attack um, in Delhi in 2012, um, December 16th, 2012. And, uh, and that, you know, for, for me, like for many, many, many other people, I knew that it affected me profoundly. And, um, and, you know, I did, I did, you know, other things as well. But one of the things that happened was, was I wrote this piece of music and, and put it on my album, just, just in her honor, you know, and, um, 
as time went on and as the last 10 years have, had passed, by the time we got to 2022, I some because see, her attack was five days after my father died. So those two, those two events are very linked for me. Um, and so I was obviously aware of the anniversary approaching of my father's, you know, the, the 10th anniversary of his passing. So so I was also very aware of the 10th anniversary of, of her attack. And I, I didn't hear much being talked about about that. It felt like it was very much in the past. And yet it was so much not in the past because what was being talked about was one other attack after another around the world. So we were still hearing about whether it was Sarah Everard or in this country or other people in other countries and just what's happening to women on a global scale. Um, I just felt like I needed to mark the anniversary, not just for, for me or for her, but for all the other names as well. And so that was why I renamed it as in her name rather than in specifically one person's name. And I also, by this point, the, like the rage I felt, I just wanted to be more overt. The previous one was an instrumental piece and it felt like I needed to be more direct. So I approached my my dear friend, the incredible poet, Nikita Gill, and asked if she would write words for, for me. And she, you know, often writes about uh, these kind of themes and feels very strongly about them. So she wrote this immediately incredible piece of work um and um and we extended and rewrote the piece to to incorporate you know spoken word and and mm. more music and then uh, and then i reached out to maithili prakash who is an incredible dancer Bharatanatyam dancer and choreographer to help us turn that into a into a music film to again be more overt more explicit and um yeah i, I think it's a powerful piece of work but i i think for me it was just something i needed to do for myself you know and, yeah. and if has any impact outside great but but for me it felt really important to do it i mean i know it's had a huge impact on people i know uh because you know there is a little bit of a culture of forgetting these really brutal and dramatic events they yeah. get swept over mm-hmm. by you know more sort of huge sort of generalized global issues and i think for in her name i think it's really powerful and particularly when it sort of lands in that December point, you know, Mm -hmm. it it focuses you back to reality. We typically end these conversations just by asking um, what what you're looking forward to. Um, I mean, I'm very much looking forward to finally sharing chapter one forever for now. As as always happens, there's a there's a sort of fallow period between finishing music and then having it release out into the world. So, so I've been waiting to share it. And so it's great. The first song's out today, but I still have a few more months to wait before the rest comes out. So I, I can't wait to share it and, and the future chapters. So yeah, I'm just looking forward to more writing and more touring and yeah. Fantastic. Will you go to India on tour? I will. Yeah. I'll be going this winter and and probably the winter after as well. Yeah. I usually do you go. love going back. Do you love going to India? I, I do, and for obviously for many, many different reasons. Um, but it, it's always wonderful to go and perform there. It's very special.
This episode of Composing Myself has been brought to you by Wise Music Group. Thanks for listening. <laughs>